You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Um, Before I get into this, uh, I know you guys are praying for me. I requested prayer on our Facebook group page. I really appreciate uh, Pastor Stephen praying for me, and I know many of you guys are praying for me individually. Um, Thank you. It's really comforting to know that there's a uh, the church prays for their ministers and uh, pray for Steve as well. You know, like I'm not the only pastor of this church. We have a plurality of elders. Pray for Stephen as well uh, as he puts his shoulder to the plow to do the work of ministry. Uh, but again, open your Bibles to Mark chapter three verses twenty through thirty. Uh, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and tonight we're going to be seeing the climax of Jesus's run-ins with the Pharisees and scribes thus far in the gospel. Um, And it's an encounter that ends with Jesus giving a warning about the unforgivable sin. Um, Now I want to do some recap before we go in. Again, you guys heard me say much of this last week, but there's a couple of nuances here I want you guys to pick up as we think about what what we've seen so far. Uh, But so far in the gospel of Mark, we have seen many proofs and many demonstrations that tell us who Jesus is. Mark tells us right off the bat in verse 1 of chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So his title, Christ, tells us that he is the promised Messiah, promised in the Old Testament, come to save the people of God, and he is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. But in spite of the things that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen also that the Pharisees refused to believe in Jesus in spite of all the proof and evidence to Jesus' true identity. They continued to reject him. They continued to hate him. And what's wild about that is that most of the things that we've witnessed so far in the Gospel of Mark are things that have been done publicly. They're things that have been done, not in a corner, but publicly for everyone to see and hear, including the scribes and Pharisees. We've seen John the Baptist preaching that God himself was going to come and save his people. That there was one coming who was greater than any prophet, and John was to prepare his way, right? And John was preaching publicly, and people were coming from all over Israel. So again, the Pharisees and scribes would have been there to hear what John preached. And then we saw Jesus come on the scene and be baptized by John. And God publicly sent the Holy Spirit to descend upon Jesus as a dove, right? This was a public Thing, something that the public witnessed. Again, the Pharisees would have seen this. We've seen Jesus teach with authority, not quoting any rabbis and teaching not only with authority, but teaching against the traditions of the Pharisees, correcting them. We've seen Jesus teach as if he is the highest authority, that he has all the authority of Almighty God. We've heard Jesus make claims publicly that only God can make. You remember what the paralytic in chapter 2, son, your sins are forgiven you. Who can forgive sins but God? We saw Jesus in Mark chapter 3, or the end of chapter 2, and also in the beginning of chapter 3, say that he is Lord of the Sabbath day. God's day, Jesus says, is my day. These are veiled claims to Jesus' deity, that he's God. And then we've seen Jesus back up these claims to deity, messiahship, and the authority of God by doing what? By performing many mighty works, by performing miracles. Jesus has healed physical diseases. We've seen him heal a man with leprosy, 
uh, Peter's mother-in-law of a life-threatening fever. We've seen him heal a paralytic, a man with a withered hand, and various unnamed diseases so far, just crowds of people needing healing come to him. And we've seen Jesus cast out demons, which is a display of his authority over demons by silencing them and making them leave the human beings that they possess. And in doing all of these things publicly, Jesus has proven that he's more than a mere man, that he's more than any mere prophet, that that indeed he's been sent by God, that he is who he says he is, and that therefore the people should believe him and believe in him and listen to him. But in spite of all this, the Pharisees refused to believe in him. They, they heard what John preached. They had seen Christ's baptism. They had heard Jesus preach. They heard his claims. They had seen his miracles, but they continued to reject him. They refused to acknowledge the truth that daily stared them in the face. They refused to acknowledge what they knew to be true. Hold that in your mind as we go through this. They had to have known for what Jesus is going to tell us in this passage. They knew the truth. And I say that because there's no way that they could deny who Jesus is after bearing witness to all these things, except that they willfully deny the truth that God had revealed to them. There's no way they could deny his identity except to willfully reject what they knew was true. And tonight we're going to see the Pharisees and scribes reject Jesus at a high point. The strongest rejection of Christ so far in Mark's gospel. And they're going to accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan and casting out demons by the power of Satan rather than by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this blasphemy, says Jesus, is an unforgivable sin. Unforgivable sin. That should get your attention. God says there's one sin he will not forgive, and we're going to learn about it this evening. Our text this evening, uh, uh, in light of that, is a bit of a strange one. Right, it's a bit strange. Uh, there are many things addressed here. There's many different things uh, for us to touch upon. Uh, so what I'm going to do is, is what I do every week. <laughs> I'm going to walk through this text line by line and draw a few things out here and there as we go and then give you guys some things to chew on at the end by way of application. Um, but a little outline for this, uh, just so you're a bit familiar before we go. We're going to see Jesus be rejected by his own family. Then we're going to see Jesus rejected by the scribes and, and accused of being in league with the devil. We're going to see Jesus' response to this false accusation. He's going to show us that it's absolute nonsense, what they accused him of. Fourth, we're going to see in Christ's response, we're going to see Jesus teach us something about why he has come and who he is. And then we're going to see Jesus give a stern warning about the unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then finally, I'm going to give you guys two or three things that I want you to chew on that this text teaches us or reminds us. And I pray that we all leave here this evening challenged uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, one, you have to do something with Jesus for the things that he claimed and the things that he did. You have to do something with him. He is not moderately important. He's either completely important or he's not important at all. But you have to do something with him. But I also hope that we are encouraged by who he is, what he's done, and what he promises to us. So with that said, let's go ahead and read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Verse 20, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. 
And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy God, please bless us this evening as we study your word. By your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive and understand and apply your word. Please show to us with greater and greater clarity who our Lord Jesus is. And grant to us that we would fear his threats obey his commandments, hold fast to his promises, and rejoice in knowing him as our Savior and King. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our text begins where we left off last week, right? Duh, you guys knew that. That's what we do. We walk through books. But our text picks up where we left off last week. Jesus has just went up on the mountain and appointed his 12 apostles. And now Jesus the 12 apostles and the other disciples are coming down from the mountain to go back to what Mark says is Jesus' house. They're going back to where Jesus was staying, which in all likelihood, as far as we can guess, is actually Peter's house. But again, Jesus is staying there, so we can say it's Jesus' house. Uh, And as they get to Peter's house, the huge crowd that had gathered earlier in chapter 3 that we saw last week, the huge crowd gathers again. It's such a huge crowd of people needing healed that Jesus and his disciples, verse 20 says, they can't even eat. Again, pandemonium. Tons of people, probably hundreds of people, this great crowd. They can't even eat. They're so busy. Jesus is so busy doing ministry. But in this crowd, there were some special people there as well, people who knew Jesus very well. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. His family's there. His family shows up. In verse 31, we're going to be looking at next week, verses 31 through 35. Verse 31 of this chapter tells us that it's Jesus' mother and brothers. Uh, His father's not there because as far as we can tell, uh, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, died very young. Uh, After Jesus was 12 and goes to the temple, we don't see or hear any mention of Joseph ever again. Uh, So Joseph is in all likelihood dead at this point. Uh, But Jesus' mother and brothers, or half-brothers we should say, uh, are showing up. To try to seize him is what the text says. Now, seize is the same word here in Greek that we translate arrest, right? This is like a violent, take him, be violent if they have to. They've come to try to take him or arrest him and take him back home. And why do they do this? Our text is very clear. They think he's crazy. They think Jesus is crazy. They think he's out of his mind. And they probably think this because of all the trouble that Jesus has stirred up in Galilee so far. Right? Word has spread about his claims, about his miracles, about how he challenges the, the Pharisees, which was like the religious elite ruling class of the day. He's challenging them. Word has spread. 
What Jesus has done, essentially, or rather what he's doing every time that he goes head-to-head with the Pharisees, is that he's bringing down the wrath of the elite religious class of the Jewish people. He's bringing that wrath down on himself. And his family knows that this is not going to end well for him. Right? And by extension, it might not end well for them because they're related to him. So I think we can infer that they think that he must be crazy to say the kind of stuff that he was saying and make the claims that he was making. They think he's crazy. They, they probably think that he's taking his ministry too far and that he's being too extreme with it, right? Again, chapter 2, he's telling people that he can forgive their sins, right? Think about it from, from your perspective. If your brother that you grew up with is going around telling people, I can forgive your sins, right? They, they think that he's crazy, um, Again, only God can do the things that he's claiming to do. Uh, I, I can imagine that some of their thinking is probably, sure, he means well enough. He's very smart. He knows the scriptures well. He wants to help people and all that, but he's gone too far because nobody in their right mind would be doing the things that he's doing and challenging the Pharisees this way. Bottom line, his own family doesn't believe in him, which is astounding that his mother doesn't believe in him. You think after the angel Gabriel came and told her, you're going to have the Son of God, maybe that would have registered, uh, which shows us that regeneration is an act of God. <laughs> um, I, I take that back. I can't say Mary was an unbeliever completely. It's a complicated thing. I misspoke. But regardless, his own family at this point in his ministry does not believe in him. They think he's crazy. They think he's out of his mind. They reject him as a madman at this point in his ministry. They think he is delusional. And that's what many people today continue to do with Jesus. You ever met this person? They say, I don't hate Jesus, right? which we know that's a lie because the Bible says the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. But people will say, I don't hate Jesus. They might even believe that Jesus had some great things to say, but they reject that he is the Son of God and Savior. I would imagine Jesus' family is in this boat. Right? But people today will say, He's not the son of God. He's not the savior, but he was brilliant. He, uh, he, he did some good things. He, he taught some good moral things. But at the end of the day, he was also one of the most delusional men to have ever walked the earth. He thought he was God incarnate. These people may claim he was a good man, a great moral teacher, had a lot of wisdom for how people should live. But again, at the end of the day, he was crazy. He was self-deceived or he had something mentally wrong with him. But I want to submit this to you. I don't think that that makes much sense. I don't think that makes much sense. If Jesus was delusional and crazy, then why do his teachings make so much sense? And why have they stood the test of time so long? Right? You can read the sermons, sayings, and parables of Jesus for yourself in the Bible. And they don't sound like the rantings of a madman, do they? Like, I've met crazy people on the street of Portsmouth, and Jesus does not sound like them. Right? He doesn't. So whatever Jesus was... Whatever you believe about him, he was not crazy. His words are too true to come from the mind of an insane person. They are too rational and make too much sense to be the ravings of a lunatic. So whatever the reason was that Jesus claimed and taught the things that he did, you cannot say that he was crazy. His family was wrong, and so are many people today. If you're of the opinion that Christ was crazy, you've got to come up with a better explanation, because that doesn't make any sense. Now, at this point in our text, we're going to hop into verse 22 in a moment. But we're going to leave Jesus' family members and go into another story altogether. And we're going to pick back up with his family in verses 31 through 35 next week. Um, 
But in going to something else, what we're seeing right now is Mark doing something that we're going to see him do a few times in his gospel. Uh, he calls or it, It's called sandwiching. Right? So here's your little literary thing. It's called sandwiching. Mark be, likes to begin an account and then interrupt it with something different but related to it and then finish the original account afterwards. Mark does it quite often. Um, and he does it to make a big point so that we can see big themes emerging from the chapter. But now Mark turns to another group of people who also reject Jesus. One of the big themes of this passage is unbelief. His family doesn't believe in him. And now we're going to go on to see another group of people who also rejected Jesus. And their rejection of Jesus was much more sinister, hostile, and negative than the rejection of his family. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. So word about Jesus obviously had spread from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And apparently it spread enough Jesus was making enough commotion in Israel that the official representatives of the religious class, the scribes, came from Jerusalem, the capital city, to investigate Jesus and see what he's doing and saying. And their conclusion to all Jesus had said and done was that he was possessed by the devil himself and that it was by the power of the devil that Jesus cast out demons. They, they were saying, or at least I think that they're thinking on this, was that the only reason that Jesus would be challenging the religious tradition of the day and claiming the things about himself that he did was because he was possessed. And then his being possessed would then explain where he got the power to cast out demons. Now this was a vicious charge for them to bring against Jesus. An absolutely vicious charge. Consider this, they could not deny his power, could they? They had witnessed it with their own eyes. Even right before this exchange of words we're about to read, they had just witnessed Jesus perform a miracle. If you read the parallel account of this passage in Matthew 12, you can read where Jesus casts a demon out of a man directly before this exchange occurs. They couldn't deny that Jesus really did have the power to perform miracles. They couldn't deny that Jesus really was casting demons out of people. But what they could not believe was that God would empower someone to do this kind of stuff who had such little respect for their traditions. I think that's what we're seeing going on with the Pharisees. They refuse to believe it, even though they cannot deny his power. Their conclusion then was that Jesus must be doing what he did by the power of Satan. And in accusing him of this, they were saying that Jesus was a tool in the hand of the devil that he was an instrument wielded by Satan to deceive people and turn them away from the truth. They didn't claim Jesus was crazy like his family did. They claimed that he was in league with Satan, that he must have some kind of arrangement with the devil. I want to talk about that for a second. What's insane about their accusation against Jesus is that it doesn't make any sense. And we're going to see Jesus destroy it in a second, destroy their accusation, but I, I want to put, bring a couple other things uh, in addition to what our Lord says, for why their accusation doesn't make any sense. First, consider this. Jesus is performing legitimate miracles. He's healing people of diseases instantaneously. He's casting out demons, healing lepers. He's doing real, legitimate miracles. And the Pharisees and scribes knew the scriptures. No one in Israel knew the Bible better than the scribes. No one. They knew that nowhere in Scripture is Satan said to be able to perform a miracle. 
In fact, when it is addressed in one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, which I understand is after this time, but when it is addressed, Paul refers to the, quote, miracles of Satan as lying signs and lying wonders. Satan cannot perform a legitimate miracle. By definition, a miracle is breaking the natural order to do something not naturally possible. In other words, a true blue miracle is an act of creation. And who is the only being that can perform an act of creation? God. God. They knew this. So for Jesus to be doing miracles means that he must be doing it by the power of God. Because Satan cannot perform miracles. He is a creature. Satan is a creature, right? Don't get this dualistic nonsense that, Jesus, or that, that God and the devil are equally strong and that the devil cr- can create things, but he just creates bad things. That's dumb, right? The devil is a creature. He cannot create. Only God can create. So first, that's why it doesn't make any sense that they would accuse him of performing legitimate miracles by the power of the devil. Second, nowhere in Scripture, and this is really obvious for us, nowhere in Scripture is Satan characterized as a helper, is he? But Jesus is here helping people. He's healing them. He's setting them free from demons who seek to destroy them physically and spiritually. What Jesus is doing in his miracles is characteristically at odds with what the devil does. Their accusation does not make any sense, and they know it. They know they're making nonsense accusations against Jesus. They know the scriptures better than anyone else in Israel. So what they're doing is they're being willfully blind and willfully obstinate to the Son of God who stands before them. The evidence in the scriptures are clear. Jesus must be doing his miracles and casting out demons by the power of God. Mark has made this clear so far to us in his gospel. The rest of the scriptures are abundantly clear that as far as his human nature is concerned, Christ did all of his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But they were denying the truth. They were saying it's not the power of God doing this, it is the power of Satan. This man is of the devil. But Jesus hears their accusations against him, and he decides to answer them and show them how foolish and how sinful that they're being. Verses 23 through 26. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. Can, real quick, this isn't a huge point I want to make. Consider the patience of Jesus here. He called them to him and started to teach them. Like most of us would go off if someone accused us of such a horrid thing. And Jesus goes, Come here. <laughs> let's talk about it. You're dumb, but come here. Let's talk. Right? So Jesus calls them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. He gives a few short parables here to demonstrate how ridiculous their charge against him was. And and, and it's it's common sense, little short little parables here. It's common sense that a nation at war with itself will destroy itself, right? We've seen that happen throughout history. A nation that remains at war with itself will be destroyed. It's also common sense that if a family is at war within itself, there's constant infighting, then its existence is threatened too. So if Satan is empowering Jesus to defeat demons, then he will soon destroy himself. That's why Jesus starts out with, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's why he starts out, he's saying it doesn't make any sense. Now, brothers and sisters, for all we know about the devil, we know he's not stupid. Right? Like, I hope that you can agree with me on that. 
And I'm not up here to like praise the devil or anything. That would be a horrible thing to do. But it's just a fact. He's not dumb. The Bible describes him, describes him as shrewd and cunning. He's extremely intelligent. He's powerful. He's more powerful than any mere man. And he is not looking to destroy himself. Rather, he looks to destroy others. Namely, the people of God and humanity in general. He spends all of his energy on trying to thwart the plan of God and ruin God's people. He doesn't spend his energy destroying himself. So it makes absolutely no sense that Satan would fight against himself. It makes no sense that Satan would cast out his own demons through Jesus. It makes no sense that Satan would rise up against himself to defeat himself. What Jesus is doing is he's pointing out how ridiculous the unbelieving hearts of the Pharisees, or rather the scribes, were. It's as if... Jesus is saying here, you hate me so much. You so refuse to repent and believe in me that you would rather make accusations against me that literally make no sense. You would rather be completely illogical than recognize that I am the Messiah. You would rather attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil than to admit that God has sent me to save his people. Again, the scribes and Pharisees could not deny what Jesus was doing. They had seen it themselves. They don't deny it. They had the scriptures, so they knew this must be a work of God. But they were so willfully unbelieving and obstinate against Christ that they would rather lie to themselves than submit to him. And to be honest, that just sounds like unbelievers in general sometimes, if we're going to keep it real. People would rather believe the nonsense of atheism than believe that Jesus is the Son of God and submit to him. People will do the most insane mental gymnastics to get around what the word of God clearly says. They will do the most insane mental gymnastics to get around what their own conscience is telling them. So hard is the heart of the depraved human being. It must be a work of God if anyone's going to repent and believe the gospel. But back to our text. After Jesus shows them how illogical their accusation against him is, he goes on to tell them what is actually happening when he casts out demons. He's going to tell them what's really happening. They accuse him of working with Satan to do his miracles, and he's going to refute that, or he's refuted that, and he's going to tell them now something about himself and how and why he does the things he does, casting out demons. Verse 27 But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus gives them one last parable. And in effect, he says this. You can't rob a strong man's home unless you're stronger than him. If I tried to rob Josh, Josh would beat me down because Josh is much stronger than me. Have you seen this guy? He's ripped, right? I'm not robbing his house. Jesus is saying if you're going to rob someone, you have to be stronger than them. If you want to rob a strong man, you'll have to first overpower him and then tie him up. And then and only then can you take his stuff. In this parable, Jesus is comparing the devil to the strong man. The devil is the strong man in this parable. He, Satan, is the one who has the house filled with goods. 
He's saying that the only way to take the devil's goods is to be stronger than him and bind him up. The only way to, quote, rob the devil of his possessions is to conquer him first. And what do we know happens when Jesus casts a demon out of a person? Jesus is demonstrating his strength over the devil. The demons are terrified of Jesus. He tells them to be silent, and they are silent. He tells them to leave, and they leave. There's no argument with him. So much more powerful is Christ that it is no contest. He's demonstrating his strength over the devil, and he's freeing the possessed person from the grip of Satan. Jesus is saying here, I am the stronger man. That's how I cast out demons. No mere man is more powerful than the devil, but I have the almighty spirit of God working in me. This, this parable is beautiful. If you're thinking through, if you're, maybe you're getting ahead of me and you're thinking through some of the implications here. This, this little verse has become a favorite of mine over the past year or so. It displays the strength of Jesus. Consider this, the house in this parable represents the world. It represents the kingdom of Satan, so to speak. And we can rightfully call the world that, right? Paul calls Satan the lowercase g, God of this world. Paul also calls the devil the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience, who leads unbelievers around. Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that he blinds men. The devil truly is the king of this world, so to speak. That's not to say that God's not the ultimate sovereign king, but the devil is indeed a ruler over this world. The house represents his world. And the goods of the house are souls. The goods of the house are people. Jesus is saying, I am the stronger man who has come to conquer the devil, and I've come to raid his kingdom. I've come to raid and ruin his kingdom. I've come to take captive sinners and make them free and translate them from the kingdom of darkness to my kingdom. Jesus is not in league with the devil. Here he makes clear that he is completely opposed to Satan and has, in fact, come to ruin his house and spoil it. He's come to take his goods. That's why Jesus casts demons out of people. He's the stronger man. As John tells us in 1 John, Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. As Isaiah 49 tells us, he came to take the captive sinner free from the one who had them in their possession. He came to save sinners from their bondage to sin. He came to free us from the penalty of our sin and from the power of Satan. That's what Jesus is saying here in this parable. Indeed, the stronger man has come into the world. What man? The man promised in Genesis 3.15 who will crush the head of the serpent. The great serpent crusher has come to make an end and ruin to the kingdom of darkness and save his people. This is beautiful. He came into the world to save sinners and conquer the devil. That's what you see. I want you to think about this when you read the Gospels. That's what you see foreshadowed every time that Jesus cast a demon out of a person. The stronger man has come. Praise God. Beginning in the wilderness, with Jesus as being victorious over Satan's temptations, and continuing this victory throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrates time and again that Satan is powerless to prevent him from preaching the gospel and going to the cross to save sinners. That's what Jesus is proclaiming in every exorcism. 
Christ's mission to live a perfectly righteous life and die an atoning death in place of ruined sinners is going to be an absolute success because he has conquered the devil and has bound him. Rejoice. Satan cannot stop him. That's what he's saying here. Satan cannot stop me. Pharisees cannot stop him. The death, death cannot stop him. Nothing can stop him. He will save his people because he is the stronger man. He will plunder the house of Satan and save sinners. Whatever, whatever power the devil may have over men to make them blind and make them obstinate, Christ can break it if he so chooses. Jesus can set sinners free. Free from their slavery to sin. Free from the tyranny of Satan. Christian, I want you to behold the power of our great God and Savior. You want another? We love the titles of Christ. Here's another one. The stronger man. Satan is strong. Jesus is the stronger man. Behold the omnipotence of your Lord. Stronger than all cannot be stopped. Who saves sinners. And he saves them. By his cross. In a demonstration of the great power of God, the Lord Jesus takes the sin of all those who would believe upon himself and goes to the cross to suffer the wrath of God that sinners deserve, and he suffers it in their place. Dies, is buried, and is raised from the dead on the third day to prove his victory over the devil. And to prove that sinners who trust in him have had their sins taken away by him because he has paid for their sin on the cross. He's come to save sinners. And he did. That's why on the cross he says, it is finished. I have done my work to save my people from their sins. The stronger man did it, brothers and sisters. An unbeliever, he can save you. He can save you if you only look to him. If you turn to him in faith, believing that you're a sinner who deserves God's wrath, but that Christ has taken that wrath in your place and was raised from the dead, he will forgive you. If you trust him to forgive you for your sins and set you free and give you new life, he promises to do it. So turn to him and live. Turn to him and be free. As a hymn we sang growing up, would you be free from your burden of sin? Then turn to him and live. Would you be free from your guilt? Would you be free from your sin? Would you be free from the power of Satan? Then turn to him and be saved and be free. But after making clear that Jesus is not in league with Satan, but has in fact come to conquer Satan, Jesus goes on to give a very stern warning. But it's a warning mixed with a great promise that I don't want us to miss. Verses 28 through 30, let's read. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now verse 28 gives us a beautiful promise that should make us filled with joy and hope, should it not? And sometimes I think we glance over it because the rest is dark. But here Jesus says that all kinds of sin will be forgiven the children of man. All kinds. Now that's not a blanket statement that means all people are saved regardless of whether or not they repent of their sin and trust in Christ. 
if that were true, then this one passage contradicts literally everything else in the New Testament, right? You must repent of your sins and trust in Christ or you will go to hell and perish for eternity. There is only forgiveness of sins found in Christ. You must trust him and him alone to save you. So it's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that everyone, regardless of whether or not they trust in him and repent of their sins, will be saved. Rather, he's saying that forgiveness is available for all sins if a sinner will look to him in faith. This is why we meet here, brothers and sisters. God is willing to forgive you for anything that you've done. What a beautiful thing for us to read here. This great promise of forgiveness. No matter what we've done, no matter how awful our sins have been, he even says all manner of blasphemies will be forgiven. How merciful is God? No matter what kind of life we've lived, if we will look to Christ in faith, all of our sins will be pardoned because Christ has satisfied the wrath of a righteous and holy God in your place. There is provision for the forgiveness of all of our sins in the blood of Jesus. But there is one exception, says Jesus. The one sin God will not forgive is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, there have been a ton of bad interpretations of this passage throughout the years. Some really bad ones. I'll spare you. And even to this day, there are Christians who fret and worry that they've committed this sin. Anyone else ever worried if you did this? When I was an atheist, I tried to do this. So you can imagine after I become a Christian and then I read this passage. Because, again, I just kind of went through the Bible and said, how many of these laws can I break? Um, But clearly I didn't (laughs) commit this sin. But again, there are many Christians who fret and worry that they committed this sin. But what is it? I think we find our answer in the context of this passage. Specifically, verse 30. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. We're going to dive into that in just a second. But before we go on, you should know that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a very, very specific sin. People do not commit this sin on accident. Right? And praise God for his great mercy that the one sin he says he won't forget, you aren't going to commit it on accident. This is an incredibly volitional sin. This is something that you are conscious of what you're doing, and you choose to do it against all knowledge that you have. It's an incredibly volitional sin. No one's ever done this on accident. And it is an incredibly rare sin. Incredibly rare. But let's go ahead and dive in. The unforgivable sin is the sin of attributing to Satan... What is done by the power of God? The unforgivable sin is the sin of attributing to Satan what is done by the power of God. But let's get more specific because it goes a little bit deeper than that. First off, R.C. Sproul pointed this out, and this is incredibly helpful. It's a sin that involves words. It's blasphemy. Whether it be signed, spoke, or written, it involves words. I know a lot of people think that it's unbelief is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because to persist in unbelief and not believe that Christ is the Son of God and Messiah and not trust in Him does indeed send you to hell because if you refuse to believe, then you refuse to repent and trust in Christ and therefore your sins cannot be forgiven. Some people think that that's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, right? Just persistent unbelief. And that certainly will send you to hell. If you persist in your unbelief and you refuse to come to Christ, you will not be forgiven of your sins. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here because He's calling it specific blasphemy. It's words. It's words that we use. It is to declare that Jesus is in league with the devil. That the work that Jesus did was actually empowered by Satan. It is to declare that Jesus is in fellowship with the devil. 
Moreover, this sin is committed by someone who has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And when I say enlightened, I don't mean regenerated. Regenerated is whenever God takes someone who's dead in their sins and gives them spiritual life, brings them from life to death, gives them the gift of faith, and then they trust in Christ and are saved. Regeneration always comes directly and immediately before conversion. I'm not talking about a converted person. Someone who has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. I mean someone who has been given knowledge by the Spirit of God. So this sin is committed by someone who has been given knowledge by the Holy Spirit to such a degree that they internally know that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. But then they accuse him of being satanic. Right? Against the knowledge that they have, they accuse Jesus of being an accomplice with the devil. This is a very specific sin. A very specific sin of linking Jesus together with the devil. And it is incredibly rare. Most people would never even think to do something like this. Most people would never think. And most people don't have, if we're going to be honest, most people don't have the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit to commit this sin. That they internally know who Jesus is. That they say he's in league with the devil instead. Most people don't have that kind of enlightenment. But this does show us how deeply the Pharisees and scribes who were with Jesus that day hated him. And they refused to come to him in faith. Again, you've heard me say this about three times now in this sermon. They knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies concerning Messiah. They could not deny Jesus' power to do miracles. They knew in their heart that only God can do the things that Jesus is doing. But then, rather than repenting and coming to Christ in faith, they doubled down on their unbelief and accused Jesus of doing miracles by the power of Satan instead of by the power of the Holy Spirit. They knew the truth about Jesus. It was staring them in the face, but they rejected him and blasphemed the work of the Holy Spirit. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit this way reveals an unbelievably hardened heart. A heart so hard that it sins against the knowledge that it has against Jesus. That is astounding. Astounding. For such a sin, Jesus says, there is no forgiveness. Now, there's no forgiveness for either one of two reasons. And I'm not quite sure which one is right. So I'm going to give them both to you. Either God just refuses to forgive this sin because it is so grievous and so offensive to him that he just says, I won't. Or it cannot be forgiven because such a person is reprobate and incapable of repentance and faith and therefore impossible to receive forgiveness because they will not come to Christ. It's one of those two. Personally, I lean towards God just refuses to forgive them because it's so grievous a sin but I'll leave that up to you to fight about. But I want to make a note here for us. To hear that there is a sin that God will not forgive should make you pause for a moment, Christian. And it should make you fear. It should remind us that our God is not a God who is to be trifled with. So often in the West, we have this idea of, of, of God as like your buddy. And don't get me wrong, the Lord Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, right? Like, God is so kind to us, and he makes us into his children. But nevertheless, God is a God to be feared. And some, sometimes people say, what does that word fear in the Bible? It means fear him, <laughs> right? The Greek means fear. 
Shocker, right? Like we are to actually fear God. We're to have a great respect for Him. He's not a God to be trifled with. And He's serious about His holiness. It should give us pause that there is a sin God says, I won't forgive. But oh, don't forget this. What grace from Him. That He is quick to forgive literally every sin aside from this very specific one. What a merciful and compassionate God that we serve. That he would forgive all manner of sin and blasphemy that the children of man commits. That he would have mercy on sinners like us and forgive us through the blood of his son. How how gracious and worthy of our praise is he for being willing to forgive any and all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Christian, do not let this unforgivable sin make you doubt the kindness and goodness of our God. It is his grace to dispense as he sees fit. Don't let this make you think that God is some kind of a tyrant. He is most merciful, most compassionate, most holy, most just, most righteous, most forgiving, and most gracious. For the one he will not forgive, think of all that he does forgive. He's exceedingly kind beyond our imagination. Now, I want to be clear on something before I go on. I know I've been up here for a while now, but you'll be all right. Sometimes I have Christians come to me and ask, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And they're panic-stricken, and they're grief-stricken, they're sick about it. Listen to me just real quick. If you're worried about whether or not you've committed this sin, let me encourage you that you probably haven't committed it. If you're worried that you have, you probably haven't. And I say that because your fear and worry of having done this is proof that your heart is not hard against Christ. Straight up. Those who have committed this sin are reprobate sinners who do not care about the things of God. They are not worried with forgiveness that comes from Christ. You don't see the scribes and Pharisees worried ever. They They just hate Jesus. So if you're worried about it, I can assure you, you most likely have not committed this sin. But maybe you're asking this, can a Christian commit this sin? Can a Christian commit this sin? Well, I'm going to steal straight from R.C. Sproul's playbook on this. I would say yes and no. Yes and no. Our sin nature, here's why I say yes, our sin nature is still very much alive in us until we are glorified, right? So we have the capacity to commit this awful sin. If left on our own, to our own devices, apart from the grace of God, yes, it is possible for us to commit this sin. But God gives us a promise that he will preserve his people. It's a beautiful promise. So Christian, you should know that God has made you a promise that he will finish what he started in you. He made a promise, as we're going to sing about in a moment, that he will not let your soul be lost So God will keep all of his people from committing this sin. He will hold us in his hands and keep us from committing apostasy. He will hold us in his hands and keep us from falling away. So praise God, Christian. Our God preserves his people from falling away. That is our great hope at the end of the day, isn't it? Listen, if God left you on your own, you're not waking up a Christian tomorrow. You're just not. But God promises to preserve his people. If left to our own devices, we would fall away in a moment. But he preserves his own because he is faithful to his covenant that he's made with us through the blood of Christ. And one last thing before we get into application, or the other two application pieces I have. I have a quick piece of application for us for Christians about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. 
So while I believe firmly that God will keep his people from committing the unforgivable sin, I think that there is something for us to see here for ourselves. Part of what makes this particular sin so grievous and so awful is that it is a sin against knowledge. Isn't that what makes it shocking? It's not just run-of-the-mill unbelief. It's a sin against knowledge. It's a hard-hearted sin against what the Spirit has allowed someone to know. And Christian, do we not have much knowledge about Christ and his word? We have much knowledge. And yet so often we decide to choose what is evil and sin against what we know is true. And sin against what we know is right. How grievous then does that make all of our sin? I'm serious. How grievous then does that make all of your sin? Especially those of us who have been walking in the faith for years. We know the truth, and yet we sin against what God has so graciously allowed us to know about Christ, about sin, about the gospel, about the blessings of God, about the law of God, about the threatenings of discipline, and all the rest. How grievous is our sin then? So Christian, I want you to think through your life and repent of your willful, known sin. It is complete foolishness and a grievous abuse of the grace of God for us to know the truth, to know God's word, to know the goodness of God as forgiven sinners, to know how kind he's been to us, and then to choose to sin against him. That is a grievous sin. That is a high-handed sin. So repent. Confess your sin to God. Plead his forgiveness based on the merits of Jesus. And forsake your sin. And then rest in the promise of verse 28. All sins will be forgiven those who trust in Christ. All of them. Do not abuse grace, but rather live in godliness. Christ has been too kind for us to sin against what we know. I have a couple other things for you to take home for application. The first is this. This passage deals with unbelief. Jesus' family didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't believe in him. They claimed he was of the devil. This passage reminds us of this, guys. You have to do something with Jesus. You have to do something with him. You have to either accept that he is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, who came into the world to save sinners, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again on the third day, or you have to reject his claims as the ramblings of a madman or as the deception of the devil. That's what you have to do. As C.S. Lewis famously put it, and you guys already know this, I'm sure, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Those are your options. Unbeliever, you have to do something with him. You have to do something with Jesus. He's either a crazy person who ought not be listened to about anything. But that doesn't make sense because he was brilliant. Or he's an awful, horrible deceiver and liar on par with the devil himself because he claimed to be God and he demanded unyielding allegiance to himself. But again, that doesn't make sense because his life was so exemplary and moral and godly. Or he really is the son of God. And therefore, you are obligated to come to him in faith or perish in your sins. But you have to do something with him. As C.S. Lewis said, the one thing he is not is moderately important. He's either completely important or he is completely unimportant or unimportant. Unbeliever, you have to do something with him. But Christian, what a reminder for us. 
in that thought, you have to do something with him. What a reminder for us that Jesus really is who he said he is. He's God, and he ought to be treated as such. Let me plead with you, Christian. If you profess the faith, Jesus cannot be moderately important to you. God help us. He cannot be moderately important to you. You cannot put him on a shelf Monday through Saturday and then dust him off on the Lord's Day. That's nonsense. If he's only important enough for once a week, then he's not important enough for any of it. But we know who he is. Christian, you have the knowledge of who he is. He cannot be moderately important. He must reign over your whole life. He is indeed the Messiah and Son of God, and we must treat him as such. And we see here, lastly, in this passage, we see the identity of Christ, as I said earlier, as indeed he is the strong man who has set his people free. And I want to leave you on a positive note. Christian, I want you to rejoice in this. As you repent of your known sin, as you repent of perhaps, if this is you, making Christ only moderately important in your life, I want you to also take the time to rejoice in the fact that you have been set free. And I hope that this informs your obedience and your gratitude to Christ. You were once a slave. Really think on that parable. You were a possession. You were a good in the house of the devil until Christ had mercy on you, ransacked that house, and set you free. You did nothing to deserve it. He set you free anyway. He conquered the devil by his cross in order to save you. You should rejoice in the one who is stronger than all. Your unconquerable king who has made you free. That's our Jesus. That is our omnipotent savior. The stronger man has indeed come. He has saved his people. And he set us free and we ought to rejoice in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Though this is a tough text, God, there's much here for us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see who Jesus is. Again, as I just said, he is the strong man. God, help us to rejoice in him as the one who is more powerful than the devil, who has come to conquer Satan and who has indeed set us free. And Lord, I also pray that you would grant us repentance if we have not believed. If anyone here has not believed in who Christ is, that you'd grant them repentance and faith that they might trust in him savingly. And God, for those of us who already trust in your Son for salvation, I pray that you'd grant us repentance as well. That we would repent of thinking Christ is only moderately important. That we would repent of sinning against the knowledge that we have about who he is and about your great goodness and kindness and about your law. God, help us to not even remotely look like the scribes and Pharisees who knew the truth but denied it anyway. Grant us repentance, but Lord, we rest in your promise of the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ, and we rest in your promise that you will preserve us and hold us fast in your hand so that you might receive all the glory and that you might receive us as your possession for eternity. We thank you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.